Please remain standing as we read from Ephesians chapter 4. Paul stating that, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the opportunity to listen. I pray for Andrew that you would give him words of clarity, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to think through this topic. Lord, we should recognize ourselves in these passages. And Lord, help us to have tender hearts, not only towards one another, but towards your word. May our minds be soil easily tilled so that your truth will be continuously planted in our hearts so that it may grow up into a flourishing plant that we may be fragrant to your nostrils, that we may do good works, but for your glory, towards your ends, and for your good. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Get to dive into this passage this morning. In some ways we've been setting up for this since we started Ephesians. Uh, we've talked about just the number, uh, just the way the book is structured, first half of the book that we looked at last fall, all of the promises, all of the indicatives, uh, who we are in Christ, what God has done, chosen us before the foundations of the world in love, all of that. And then we said this section, chapters 4 to 6, we're going to get into much more of the imperatives, what it is that it means, therefore, that we have been chosen, that we have been rescued from our former way of life, as we saw last week, and we have been brought into, given this new nature, uh, having put off the old self, now having put on the new self, uh, we are going to start diving into just all sorts of manner of things 
It's an interesting way to say that. But uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to be diving into all sorts of things in, in the next several weeks, having to do with our interpersonal relationships, neighbors, family, workplace, uh, the, the purity in our hearts and in our minds, all of these different things uh, Paul is going to start applying it to. And I'm just going to dive right into the outline this morning. Uh, when we talk about ethics, uh, we're talking about sort of a moral code. Uh, you can have ethics of various things. Many of you know the ancient Romans and Greeks, uh, all sorts of, eth- uh, well, they had an ethic and they had all sorts of various ethical lists, virtue lists uh, that one was to do in purpose of being a good Roman or a big good Greek. I suppose you could have an Islamic ethic, uh, a series of principles that if you followed them would make you uh, a good Muslim. Uh, We are talking this morning about a Christian ethic, Uh, specifically things, uh, moral principles that we are to follow that demonstrate, that reflect who we are, that demonstrate Uh, as we talked about last week, what it means to have put off the old uh, self uh, with all of its old ways of living and having put on the new self. Uh, and, And we said, and this is sort of the place of the Christian ethic is where we are in our outline, we said that specifically when we're talking about this, Uh, We are talking about something that belongs to a redeemed people. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, It it doesn't mean that there's not sort of common grace elements to the Christian ethic. Uh, We are all better off if if everybody were to follow a Christian ethic. And we see that in our world today. There, uh, in, in our specific modern world in the West, there are so many remnants of the Christian ethic that make for the good life, things like justice. Uh, I suspect even as we go through the list today, things like telling the truth, uh, forgiveness. You know, these are the types of things that we say, Yeah, those are really good. But one of the things that we note here is that Paul is making a contrast between the Gentiles who walk in a particular way. Uh, We saw that in verses 17 to 19 last week. And now those who have been made new. And, And the expectation is that those who have been made new are going to resonate with this ethic that uh, Paul is laying out, while those who have not been made new are still trapped in their futility, their their way of thinking that is not enlightened, that is, is darkened. So in that sense, the renewed heart is a priority for, for truly maintaining the Christian ethic. Is that, are we following, are we tracking here? Uh, that there, there is that necessity of God's work in our heart prior to our ability to really walk this out. And we see this in so many different ways. I mean, you certainly heard it in the passage that Dan read from, uh, from, first, or from 2 Peter, uh, you know, 
think about how this is laid out. May the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So grace and peace come first. Uh, his divine power has granted us everything that we need. So all of these things are, are prior to the adding to your faith, virtue, knowledge, all of this. Uh, think about even the Old Testament, uh, the, way that, uh, the way that the Lord brings the Ten Commandments to us. For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, uh, out of the land of slavery. I may have gotten those mixed up. You know, therefore, have no other gods before me. It, it's the grace that precedes the law. Uh, and this is what we recognize as we read these things, like our ability to really live out this ethic is predicated on God's work in our hearts uh, and in our lives. The Westminster Confession of Faith, and here is one of those God things, somewhere in the summer, Jerry Stutzman assigned me chapters 16 to 18 to preach today, or to teach in the, the Westminster class, and it happened to be the section on good works and perseverance and assurance, and, and so I'm reading this, I'm like, wow, this is exactly what we're talking about in Ephesians 4 today. Here's what the Westminster Divine said in chapter 16, verse 2. It says, good works done in obedience to God's commands are fruits and evidence of a true and lively faith. You know, what they're saying is, is that faith is first. Faith is this connection that we have to God, this surrender that we have to God's work in our lives. And then the good works flow out of that. They are the results of, the fruits of, a true and a lively faith. And I just, you know, I want to start here today because we're going to be pretty uh, imperatively focused the rest of the morning, but we, we have to recognize that it is all due to God's work in our life. The other thing that we recognize is that if we were to just look at this as a virtue list and just say, do these things and, and you will find your way into the kingdom, because this is what we realize is that our obedience, uh, our, anybody's following uh, of these things could never merit them salvation uh, because... A, we could never do it fully. I mean, God's holiness is such that when he asks us to tell the truth, that means absolutely no equivocance in that. You know, there, there's no secret keeping. There's no holding back. I mean, there, there is absolutely no equivocation is the word that I was looking for there. Uh, there there's none of that in there. Uh, and it also asks for pure motives. Now, which of us ever has pure motives in what we do? You know, let's say, for instance, that my neighbor uh, has a hard time cleaning up uh, their yard. Now, our neighbor happens to go to church here, uh, and they don't have this problem. Uh, so, uh, but let's say that they did. And so let's say that one day I decide I'm going to go rake their leaves and I'm going to get it out to the curb. 
Now, you may look at me and say, what a good person that is. But the reality is, I am sick and tired of looking at their leaves. The reality is, uh, you know, they're, they're drawing bugs and all of this other thing, and, and I am secretly pretty bitter that they are not cleaning up their leaves and they're taking our property values down and all of these things. So what looks like a really good thing on the outside is actually tarnished at the, at the motivation level. And, and so when we look at this, we recognize that it, it does take the work of God in our hearts and lives for us to, uh, to really do good works, to, to even have our motives uh, somewhat oriented towards God. It's going to take God's grace to, uh, to purify our works because even our best works are as filthy rags, uh, the prophet says. So there, there's a lot of things here that speak to the priority of grace when it comes to this issue of virtue and good works. The second thing, just in terms of the plan, is notice that this all takes place in community. You know, we've been talking about this throughout Ephesians chapter 4. What Paul is speaking of here is the building up of a church, of the body of Christ that is to go out. And I emphasize that for a couple of reasons. One is that Christian holiness, uh, the, the ethic of the Christian life, is never this mystical go-off-into-the-desert sort of thing where we're just us and God on our own. It's always meant to be worked out in community. This is one of the reasons why it's just so good for us to come together, to know one another, to bear one another's burdens, all of that. There's practical aspects to that. But there's really practical aspects in terms of our holiness as well. Like we, we need each other. I, I need to be able to practice virtue with you. I need you to rub the, the sharp edges off of the way that I interact with folks. We, we absolutely need each other. So to withdraw from community, this is one of the reasons why I think we struggle these days. Like we're trying to have church and an ethic without actually going to church. You know, we'll just uh, pop in online, we'll just listen to sermons, but we're not really going to be in community. And Paul says it just doesn't work that way. You know, you are members of the body. And so as Paul talks about the ethic, he's talking about this over and over again, just how important it is for you to be in a body of Christ, practicing this, working this out uh, on a day-to-day basis. And the second thing I'll just note about this community is that Paul assumes that it is a broken community. Uh, that it is a, a sin-marred community, that it is a community that is becoming. So even though uh, God has come in and done this work in us, we're st- it's still not fully revealed, and we're in the already but not yet. Some of you know that language. So for instance, uh, is it verse 28? You know, Paul says, To the community in Ephesus, which he is writing to Christians, he is assuming that he is writing to those who have 
undergone this change, having put off the old life, having put on the new life, he says, let the thief among you steal no longer. So he's assuming that some of you are robbing each other and, and that you're, you're engaged in thievery. Now, I thought about that a lot, and I wondered, who is it among us that is engaged in thievery? Because that's Paul's assumption. And, and the reality is, we probably all struggle with that a little bit, you know, whether it's robbing time from our employer, uh, robbing grace, ro you know, there's all sorts of different ways, ways that we fail to be generous with our money, we hoard it, all of these different things, robbing God. You know, but Paul assumes that there is this brokenness in the community that you, we struggle with lying, we struggle with anger, we struggle with thievery, we struggle with malice and slander and all of these different things. Paul assumes that. And so part of what he's saying here is that we are in this, uh, this purative moment, this time when we are being transformed, we, we've been made new, but we've not yet been made whole. Uh, and Paul says, this is the plan. This is why we lay out an ethic. We urge you to, to move towards it. I mean, these are commands. You know, even though grace has come into our lives and, and we are saved not by anything that we have done. Paul's been clear about that. Not by, by our good works. Chapter 2 uh, verse 8, but by grace, but by the grace of God, uh, these, these are still what is held before us and, and we must do. So that's kind of the, the plan, the, the big picture in terms of this ethic. Let's look secondly then uh, at the comprehensiveness of this ethic. And I want to look at it in a couple of different ways because what Paul really paints here is a big picture. Uh, it's comprehensive, like even in terms of our bodies, he's talking about things that we say, he's talking about attitudes that lodge in our hearts, he's talking about ways we use our hands in terms of work and thieving and all of these different things, he's talking about different types of relationships, he's talking about neighbors, he's talking about people within our household, uh, he's talking about our economy, the way that we use our money. It's an incredibly comprehensive picture, uh, you know, as opposed to something that is only an attitude or as opposed to something that is only a behavior. Uh, Paul does not limit, uh, the Holy Spirit does not limit the ethic that he's calling us to, to just one of these things, but rather he's painting this big picture. And notice uh, the second thing in terms of this comprehensiveness is that it's not only what not to do, uh, but in every one of these five or six different things, uh, we're told what not to do and what to do on the opposite side of that. So you saw in, in this passage, you know, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth. So don't lie, tell the truth in everything that you do. Be angry. Uh, and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So there is, a, uh, there is a sinless anger that we are supposed to do. 
Uh, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only as such as is good for building up. So no corruption, but instead construction, building up what we need. So there's a negative as well as a positive. And we recognize this, you know, just in our Christian ethic when we go through and we even look at the Ten Commandments. We know that when we're, we're called, uh, you shall not kill, it's not simply enough to not kill. You know, we, we promote life uh, at, at every standpoint. You know, we, we, we look and we promote life. When it tells us not to steal, Paul is saying here, but you need to, in, in honesty and industry, you need to be a part of the polis. Uh, you need to share what you have with those who are in need. So, there is a negative command, there's a prohibition, but there's also, here explicitly, but always implicitly, there is this call to the positive side of what is being done, uh, what is being talked about in this particular instance. The other thing that I think is really interesting with this passage is that uh, nearly every one of Paul's injunctions here also comes with a motivation. So he's telling us what not to do, he's telling us what to do, and he's telling us why to do it. Uh, so we get things like verse 25, you know, put away falsehood, speak the truth. Why? For we are members of one another. We, we belong to each other. Uh, be angry, do not sin, don't let the sun go down. Why? Because you don't want to give a foothold to the devil. You don't want to allow the devil to, to have a, uh, even a toehold in your life. Um, you know, do, do honest work. Why? So that you may have something to share with someone in need. And it goes on and on. That you may give grace to those who hear. Verse 29, verse 32 uh, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. So Paul paints a very, uh, a very full picture here uh, of a life that that reflects who God is, that reflects our place in the body and in society. Uh, and, and gives us both prohibitions as well as positive ways to be involved in living out that ethic and the reasons why we should do it. Uh, it's very, very comprehensive. Now, what I want to do next is just kind of still in this particular part, walk through a couple of these things that Paul says. Now, on the one hand, Paul is very comprehensive, um, and he's also very, uh, he's very careful about the words that he uses. On the other hand, um, he is selective here. He, he doesn't give us everything. So if we look at this verse or this section only in Ephesians 4 and say this is the totality of what it means to be a Christian, you know, you don't lie, you you share your money, you, you do all of these different things, and then that's it. That's, that's not necessarily true because we know from other places in Scripture that, you know, there are, there are 
issues with regards to idolatry. There are issues with regards to taking the Lord's name in vain. All of these different things. So there's, there's a number of different things. But Paul picks out several that he says are very important for the Ephesian community. And remember, this Ephesian community is a community that is uh, very worldly, uh, it's very wealthy, it's full of idols, uh, there's all of this Roman thought going on, and, and Paul wants to say, here are some things that you need to think about with regards to that. Truth and falsehood. Uh, that's the first one in chapter 25. Uh, Paul has already referred to this back in um, chapter, or verse 16, uh, or, or for 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head. So, so Paul very much has this idea of truth and falsehood in terms of what it means uh, to, to put on the new self, to display this new self that he uh, that he has talked about Christians being a part of. And, you know, as we look at this through our lens, we, we realize, like, this hasn't gone away. Uh, there, is, there are issues of truth and, and issues of falsehood that we face every day. I mean, you can't even open the news uh, and begin to read the news without wondering, is this true? Is this fake news? Like, what... What is this? Is there a, a, a level of spin on this? And, and Paul says, as much as we are able, uh, our lives are to be marked by truth. Uh, we are to pursue truth. We are to speak it positively. We are to avoid its opposite, lying. Think about this for young people. You know, so much of what you do, you're learning, you're growing. Uh, you're setting habits with regards to, to truth and falsehood. Uh, you know, in the face of punishment, you know you've done something wrong. Are you going to own it? Um, and it, you know, this never goes away. I mean, we still have this in, in our adult lives, whether it be at work or in our marriages. Uh, there's just such a such a, a tendency to want to hold back, to keep secrets, all of these different things. But Paul says, live in the truth because you are members of one another. A and we hurt ourselves. You know, that's his point with this body imagery is that it, it, whatever you do to another person or where you withhold the truth or you tell a lie, you're hurting yourself because you... We're members of one another. And we certainly know that, you know, in our close friend relationships, you know, our sibling relationships, uh, parents, kids, marriages, when, when, we, when we allow lies uh, or falsehood to linger there, it just breaks down the relationship. It, it cannot be strong. There's distrust there and, and distrust uh, takes away, erodes the character of the relationship. He says, secondly, be angry. Um, it's interesting, he says, be angry and do not sin. You know, one of the commentators that 
that I read said, as Christians, we actually probably need to be angry a little bit more. But at the right things and in the right way. Uh, Jesus was angry. We know that. He saw the money changers. He drove them out. Uh, he was upset at the people's loss of faith. He was upset at the way Jerusalem uh, handled the prophets. Uh, it caused him to weep. It caused deep emotion within him. Be angry, Paul says, but do not sin in your anger. Do not have sinful anger. And, and as we come into our modern context, I mean, we realize that we're talking to a whole group of people that struggle with anger. And some of you are, are, are angry, and everybody in your family knows it. They know that you are an angry person because it, your anger does get the best of you. Some of you are very good at being angry. And what I mean by that is you are angry and angry, anger is inside of you, but you can control its outward face and, and you look very nice, you know, but inside you, you are just consumed by anger and maybe it has something to do with a past hurt or all of these different things. Paul says you, you have to be aware of your anger. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Um, and, and part of this, you know, as we go toward the end of this particular section, he says, put away all of these things, bitterness and wrath and anger and malice. It, these are born in the heart. And, and so a lot of it is, is, is the ability to release that and, and to give it, you know, sometimes... Uh, some of you have known this passage, uh, verse 25 here, do not let the sun go, oh, sorry, I think we're in verse 27. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, 28. Uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger. It doesn't say do not let the sun go down on a fight. Uh, sometimes we misapply this verse. I think especially husbands and wives or maybe even parents and children. Sometimes it's okay to go to bed and face it in the morning. It, but part of, I think, what, what he's saying is let, let your bitterness and your anger go. You know, you, you may not get resolution at, at one or two in the morning because you're no longer thinking clearly. It's okay to go to bed. But just resolve in your hearts that we are going to reconcile. And I am not going to take this bitterness, this anger, to bed with me as I go to bed. Paul says, uh, uh, Paul says, thirdly, yes, I will not read that quote. I will keep going. Uh, Paul says, third, thirdly, uh, do not steal. This is verse 28. Boy, I'm all over the place on my verses. Uh, do not steal, but have honest labor, uh, so that, here's what I want to focus on here, I've already mentioned some of the ways that we steal, so that you have something to give to one another. You know, I, I think a lot of times we can, uh, we can say, I have kept this commandment in that I have worked hard. Especially, we, we talk about sort of the Protestant work ethic. Uh, you know, we, we talk about Dutch industriousness in West Michigan, and I know that we're not all Dutch. Uh, but, but these are virtues that we have. We, we talk about frugality. 
Uh, going Dutch is a thing. Why? Because we don't want to pay for that other person, you know. That, let's, let's go Dutch. But the gospel makes us generous. You know, and, and what Paul says here is, I have given some, you know, God has given you the ability to make money to, uh, to, to be creative in the world. Why? So that you will have something to share with somebody who is in need. So if you are an honest worker and, and you, uh, you, you don't steal, you make that apart, but you are not generous with what God has given you, you're not fulfilling this commandment. You, you are, you're falling short. You know, generosity throughout the scriptures is just one of the major marks of a Christian. And I somehow feel, our uh, fear, that, that frugality has replaced generosity. Uh, that, that that has become more of a virtue than actually sharing with those who are in need. Fourth, uh, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful in building one another up. The term sapros, corrupt, unwholesome, it means putrid, rancid, rotten, or decaying. This is speech with a stench. Uh, does this sound familiar to any of you? You know, your, your political haranguings, all of these different things. Uh, we're not just talking about lying now. We're, we're talking about the ways that we tear one another down. We're talking about the ways that we use our speech to talk about people who hold some of the highest offices in our land. We talk about uh, the ways that we, we, people that we don't agree with, partners in our firm or whatever it might be, the lady down the street. We talk about these people in a way that is full of stench. And this is inside the church as well as it is outside. We certainly know that it's outside, but Paul says this is not who you are. You know, build one another up as you put on this new self. 31, 32, bitterness, rage, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Uh, I, I think one of the things about this, these are, uh, they begin in the heart. You know, we've been talking about sort of these real interpersonal things, but, but here you see the things that fester in the heart, uh, that, that, that build up. Now, some of them come out, the clamoring, the slandering, uh, but it, it's, it's this path that builds up in our heart, the things that we think about, that we stew about a, as we, we read the various things, as we interact with various people, we allow these things to build up in our heart. Instead, Paul says, we are to be kind, we're to be tender-hearted or compassionate, uh, we are to forgive one another's, literally be grace-filled. You know, in, in our hearts, you know, Paul is saying, let these things reign. Now, how do we do this? I, I mean, what Paul says, I mean, we could spend a lot more time on this and you know, you read different things and look at different sermon series, and I've seen, you know, every one of these we could take a whole week on and, and talk about truth-telling and anger and all of these different things. We're not going to do that. 
uh, I encourage you to think about it. Maybe even pray through it. Take one of these, you know, each day of the week and, and just watch how it plays out in your life, both in your encounters as well, you know, the things that are done towards you as well as your attitudes towards people's lives. But how are we to be these people? We've already said, you know, God's work has got to come prior to us. We cannot, we cannot fulfill this. I mean, it is so clear when we look at the comprehensive that we cannot do this. So what is it? You know, how is it that, that we can be right before God? How is it that we can be in fellowship with Him? Well, Paul's been telling us this the whole book. You know, he's been telling us he, he chose you before the foundations of the world in love. You know, while you were still sinners, Paul says in, in Romans, God set his affection on you. It wasn't due to anything that you had done. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't earn it. You never will merit it. But God, in his great mercy, has said, I, for my own glory, I uh, to display the love that is in my heart, I'm going to reach down and I am going to draw these people to me. And, and we said last week, it, it's so personal. And we get this here. I mean, this is an incredible passage, you know, especially if you go back to verse 17 and you look at how Paul talks about the work of each member of the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity, remember in, in verse 20 last week, Paul says to the Ephesians, but that is not how you learned Christ. And we said it wasn't how you learned about Christ, you learned him. That's how you heard him. You know, Jesus comes to us in a personal way and he engages us, he engages our heart and he begins to draw us towards him. In, in verse 29, uh, 30 here, 30? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for by whom which you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, this one, chapter 1, verse 13, he talks about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. But he, he says, this Holy Spirit lives with you. And this is one of the things where we see the personality of the Holy Spirit. He lives with you and you can grieve the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? If I don't care about you, you can't really grieve me. Sort of. Not as much. But, you know, when my kids do something, uh, it, it really grieves me. Why? Because I love them. Because I care for them. Because they have a part of my heart. And, and that's the picture that Paul is giving us here about the Holy Spirit in our lives. Like we are loved by this Holy Spirit who is within us, sealing us, motivating us, uh, giving us the impulse to be able to obey, giving us the strength day by day. And when we, we fail to do so or when we go opposite to what he's doing, he says, you grieve the Holy Spirit. It is such a sadness. And then he says in chapter 5, verse 1, 
you know, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. You are a beloved child of God. You see this, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? You know, all three have been working to move you from the old self to the new self. And they love you. They are ravished by you. They look at you and they see a perfection that we struggle to see in ourselves. They see beyond our failings. They see beyond all of this. And when we move contra or counter them, it, it grieves their heart because you are a beloved child. And you don't have to look any farther than verse 2 to know that this is true. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The cross is behind me. You're going to walk out underneath the cross this morning. You, you cannot come into this church or go out of this church without seeing Christ's sacrifice. The, the cross is not just this, you know, clever adornment. But it speaks to us of the love of Christ for you. And it's that love that gives you both the power and the motivation to live out the Christian ethic. May it be so. I know, you know, there's a lot here that we could look at. I know it's a little overwhelming. I know that shame is real when we read through these things. But what I know more deeply and more fully is that you, in Christ, are a beloved son or daughter of God. That the Holy Spirit is in you and, and within you, sealing you for the day of redemption. And our hope is not in us, but it's in Him. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. As it comes to us, uh, we, we are engaged we are engorged. We are, um, we are also uh, just so aware of how far short we fall. But we also recognize that what we could never do in the flesh, you have done uh, in the person of Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit that has applied it to us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, uh, that you would help us to recognize the very power of that cross. Uh, that has redeemed us and made us whole. Lord, I do pray as we walk out of this place from the very moment that the amen is sounded, uh, that we would really think about what it means to be members of one another, to engage one another in truth and without anger and uh, honesty and generosity and all of these different things. Um, again, may the power of your cross make it so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.